0: me heavenly father we're grateful once again that we can come before you as your people this day and celebrate that you are god and man in our lord and savior jesus christ and identified with us in your baptism lord jesus and i pray as we lift the superiority of jesus's baptism as opposed to john I ask, Lord, you would speak new truths into each and every one of our lives, that we would go forth from this place rejoicing, knowing you, to follow you in our day as the first church followed you. Take our minds now and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. A few months back, I had the privilege of being invited to a workshop at Providence Church uh, hosted by Austin Shaw, the pastor at Providence, who's a friend of mine. Uh, He brought in Stephen Lawson, who's the, the preaching professor at the Master's Seminary in California. Uh, Dr. Lawson worked with R.C. Sproul for years and and Ligonier Ministries, and he's a wonderful uh, expositor, and he spoke of his experience growing up at First Baptist Church under the preaching ministry of Dr. W.A. Criswell. Doesn't that sound like a Baptist name? Dr. W.A. Criswell, with the average Sunday attendance of 26 thousand people the largest SBC church of that time back in the 60s and 70s five services a day you think I work hard (laughs) you know nothing compared to Dr. Criswell he described Dr. Criswell as being a lion in the pulpit When you have a person of that stature with that knowledge of the scripture and that power in a large metropolitan area like Dallas, it's no surprise that the church bears great fruit. And if that was true in Dallas 30 years ago, we should not be surprised when John in his day, notice verse 15, says that the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ we must remember that their messianic expectations at that time were pretty foggy. They knew that they were looking for the anointed agent of the Lord to come and restore Israel. They did not know that Messiah's name would be Jesus. So even though John was announcing my Messiah's coming, it is not surprising that they wondered if John was the Christ. Such success, such adulation would have been a seductive temptation to a lesser man. As has been the case in many in our day, but not so with John. And the text indicates that he went on to affirm the immeasurable superiority of Jesus' person, Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' judgment. That's what we're going to focus on this morning in verses 15 through 20. I know it's not what's printed in your bulletin. That's my mess up. All right? So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 3 as we look at the meaning of baptism. Kent Hughes uh, went to a preaching workshop that featured Dr. E.V. Hill. E.V. Hill back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was an African-American phenomenal preacher, you know? And Dr. Hill spoke of a woman that was affectionately known at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. He spoke of a woman who sat in the front row that they belovedly called 1800 because nobody knew her age. Just good old 1800, you know, sat there. And... 1,800 was hard on suspecting preachers because she wanted the preacher to lift Jesus up, but she didn't use that word. She would say, she would yell at the top of her lung, get him up. You know, so you'd start the sermon, you hear old 1,800 yell, get him up. And if you weren't lifting Jesus high in the sermon after a few minutes, it would be a long day for you with her on the front row. Now here, John the Baptist's response to misplaced flattery because they think he's the Messiah was to get him up as he describes Jesus is baptized, the work of Jesus in a believer's life so that we too can get him up in our lives. Amen? After all, that's the chief purpose of why we're here. Not in church, but why we're here on earth. So let's look at this. First, the superiority of Jesus, period, his person. Verse 16, in response to the people's speculation about John being Messiah, John affirmed the superiority of Jesus. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In Palestine, at that time, teachers were held in such great respect by their disciples that they voluntarily voluntarily acted as their teachers' slaves. A rabbinic saying that was dated around the time of Jesus stated that disciples ought to do everything for their masters that a slave does except for one thing. You don't have to untie his sandals. That was simply too much to ask any Jew to do for another. So John had it right in our relationship with Jesus Christ. He affirmed that he was not worthy of doing the most personally degrading task for our Lord. And the lesson for us should not be missed. It should be taken to heart. Because it's easy for us to take the privileges of God's grace uh, for granted that we forget that we also are not worthy to untie his sandals. Now it's true as scriptures say Hebrews 4:16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace inviting an open outpouring of our hearts as Jesus welcomes us in but God's word never encourages irreverence and we are never to be presumptuous upon the grace that he has given us in Jesus Christ and neglect reverence in our prayer lives. John was the greatest of all men. He was having the greatest of all ministries to date. Thousands were at his feet. But he knew that he wasn't worthy to perform even the humblest act for Christ. So if we aim to get him up, We must first get ourselves down. A posture of humility before our holy God who calls us his own. That's the superiority of Jesus' person. Secondly, we see the superiority of Jesus' ministry. Second half of verse 16. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. The superiority of Jesus' baptism is apparent. Water is external, while baptism with the Spirit and fire is internal. One can be baptized with water without being baptized by the Holy Spirit, and vice versa. Water baptism can only wash the outside of a person, but baptism with the Spirit and with fire cleanses the inside. And we should note that the language of this text, which couples spirit and fire baptism with one preposition, makes it clear that all believers undergo both baptisms. The baptisms are not separate, but are complementary aspects of the same baptism. So spirit baptism and fire baptism are shades of the same inner baptism that's the experience of all believers. So what happens when you're baptized with water and the fire. Well, the great classic text that at once describes and celebrates the believer's baptism is 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the Spirit. That's a reference to the Spirit's work initiating us into the body of Christ. And f- as we all have faith in Christ, we are. All Paul say have that experience. That happened to me at Lent in 1983. I was 21 years old. I had no idea the incredible dynamics that had taken place. I really had never heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I was baptized indeed and now 40 years later i can match my subjective realizations with the objective work that took place in my soul what does the holy spirit accomplish in us when he baptizes us in the body of christ let's talk about that what does the holy spirit do number 1 he regenerates us we are regenerated we are born again I was born of the Spirit on that day, described as John 3, 3 through 6. As a young believer at 21, I know that experience was supernatural. My initial subjective experience of regeneration was twofold. Number one, a sense of being clean. And then, number two, a bounding experience of joy and well-being. (laughs) Why not? think of the massive transaction that had taken place the metaphor of being born again is perfectly descriptive of what the holy spirit does in a ministry of obstetrics i have been delivered from darkness and brought into the light number two the holy spirit when he does this work in baptism with the spirit we are indwelt by the holy spirit Jesus says in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. As a result of my giving my life to Christ in this way, once and for all, it took me five years. No, six, yeah, six years. Six years. You know, I was confirmed at 15. I really didn't get it until I was 21. Talk about being thick, all right? As a result, all of a sudden, I lost my sense of having to find my identity in my performance. I grew up in an impressive neighborhood. Across the street from me was a five-star general. Down the street were three full-bird colonels in the military. Highly excessive, successful businessmen. And all of them had postgraduate degrees, every single one of them. So I grew up in this culture of you will succeed. And I always felt like I was falling short. But when I gave my life to Christ, there was a continental divide in shaping my personality. Oh, my dad loved me no matter what. He was a great father, and I appreciate that. But I also had a heavenly father now who loved me even in my striving. Third, we're sealed. What I did not know at that time is that God had marked me with a seal, tagged me with an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, as Paul explains in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 15. He writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Thus, the Spirit seal not only assured me that I was his, it also gave me a sense of protection and security. Later, in Ephesians, Paul uses the same word, When he says, through the Holy Spirit, we are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit had become my down payment, a deposit that guarantees my inheritance. And so he's done for you, as you are sealed. Fourth, the Holy Spirit in baptism, we are prayed for. Well, then as a young man growing in my prayer life, was a great need of intercession, I discovered that the Holy Spirit himself was praying for me. Romans 8, 27, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And the Holy Spirit has been praying for me for the last 40 years. He's praying for you as well. When I am depressed, and yes, I get depressed. I know it's a shock to some of you. I seem up, and I am. I'm naturally optimistic. But I confess, this has been a lousy two years to see people just walk away from the faith, not to return phone calls, not to care. To just seem to leave for the minutest reasons. And I know all my mentors say, Gene, don't take it personally. And I know I shouldn't. But it's not like we were a church of (laughs) 26,000. You know? We're a church of what? in COVID? 60, 80, 40 online. Thank God for you all. You know? Thank God for you all. It's not easy. I thank God for you. But what I am reminded of is that the Holy Spirit is praying for me. When I don't have the words to use, he is praying for me. And that also, by the way, is why it's a great thing to be an Anglican, because you can just open up your prayer book and pray the prayers that are in there, because it's the Bible set to prayer in the daily office. I I highly recommend it to you. So fourth, we're prayed for. Fifth. We're enlightened. So I heard this sermon on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in the morning of a chilly day in March in Virginia. Later that evening, I took out my Bible and I read the passages that my rector recommended that I pray. Romans 10, 9 through 10. John 1, 12. Philippians 1, 6. And I began to experience what John Wesley wrote about in And Can It Be when he tagged this line, the dungeon flamed with light. I began to understand the Bible, to comprehend the Word of God. It became alive within me. That which was before me confused me before now made sense and enlightened my soul. Fifth and last, but certainly not least, the indwelling Holy Spirit began to put to death the deeds of the flesh in my life. Romans 8.13, that morning the Spirit washed away my sins through the blood of Jesus Christ and a lifelong process had begun in which the Spirit would relentlessly develop practical holiness within me. And I'm not there yet. I've said often there's no perfect people here, right? 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 Okay, we're all on a journey, but we're gaining in practical holiness together. As believers, in one spirit, we were baptized into one body. How transcendingly more beautiful is Jesus' baptism with the Spirit than John's baptism of water. The former is not merely a washing of the skin, but a washing and a regeneration of the soul. So what, is, what does John mean when we also get baptized with fire? Well, as we've noted, that it's the same work. But notice fire represents the Spirit's ongoing work of purification and cleansing in a believer's life. Significantly in the Old Testament, we know of passages which the God's Spirit and the fire do just that. Isaiah 4.4 speaks of cleansing Zion, Jerusalem with washing and fire. During Advent in Malachi 3, I preached on uh, this when we were talking about John the Baptist's calling ministry. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then verse 2 speaks of Jesus' ultimate judgment in terms of washing and purification and fire. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Of course, the, the lies of God's children do not undergo judgment. Rather, they are graciously refined by the fire of the Holy Spirit through life of sanctification. That word sanctification means set apart, to grow, to, to, be, to make a difference. In ancient times, refiners would heat the metal until it became liquid. They would skim off the impurities, otherwise known as the dross, the refiner knew the material was, the metal was purified when the molten liquid mirrored back his own reflection. So it is with the Spirit's work in our lives. He melts our hearts, skims away the dross. We begin to look like Jesus and the metal is cooled into Christ's likeness Then he turns up the heat again. We sing about this. When through fiery trials, thy pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy flame shall not hurt thee, I only design. Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Amen? Amen. That's what happens. Jesus' baptism is superior, my friends. Water only washes the service, but fire washes our being. Spirit baptism makes all things new. God's spirit regenerates, cleanses, indwells, prays for, illuminates, empowers, and sanctifies his children. Get him up because he's done that for each and every one of us. And last, we see in this passage that this baptism also in Jesus brings a superior judgment. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is supremely discriminating. John didn't know who the insincere were in these crowds. Oh, he tried to smoke out the hypocrites. He called them vipers, you know. But Jesus doesn't lack any discernment. He knows the heart of everyone. So he uses the metaphor here of a harvest. The wheat is brought in. It's trodden down by oxen. The harvester comes in, takes up a winnowing fork, tosses the grain up into the air. The wheat grain falls. The chaff blows into a pile where it is burned. Jesus couldn't, John couldn't read a single mind, but Jesus reads every thought and weighs every motivation. Peter, Peter said this to him, remember? In John 21, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus, because he's infinitely superior, being fully God, knows all things. So positively, this means that he knows whether he has worked faith in our hearts, and thus none of us are truly ever lost. But for those who reject Jesus, his judgment will not only be perfectly discerning, it will also be ultimate the Greek word for unquenchable, here for unquenchable fire is the Greek word asbestos. All right, it won't burn. This fire won't ever stop. It's a judgment. And I know the world jokes about that. Let them joke. Peter Pan author James Berry said, Heaven for climate, hell for company. ACDC said, I'm on a highway for hell, and it's going to be one big party. Woo! Cool intro. Sucked in a lot of my generation. But friends, divine judgment is not a joke. We know from Jesus himself that heaven is forever. And Jesus closed the parable of the last judgment with these words, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, Prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Punishment is eternal in the same way that salvation is eternal. So we dare not harden our heart to the truth of God's love for us in Christ. With awe, we must get him up, this righteous judge. Because of the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow in heaven on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I find it interesting as I was reading this to you, you know, you get, you get to verse 18, and Luke says, So with many other exhortation, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> He's try, trying to get away from the judgment here, it seems. But, you know, the reality is you can't know the good news until you realize the bad news. We all need a Savior. We all need a rescue. And it's an essential aspect of this good news that the bad news is part of the good news. And note that such preaching allows for no neutral response. Last week I called it a moderate response. There, there can be no such thing. People either get Christ up or put him down. There's no middle ground. And so today as a community on the feast of the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, as a tradition, we either present new baptisms or we just renew our covenant together. As John the Baptist proclaimed, Jesus Christ is superior in every way. So let us worship him in such a way. In it, the Holy Spirit soaks and burns our souls, and our souls' and dreams come true as they are regenerated, forgiven, and dwelt, sealed, prayed for, illuminated, purified. So I ask you, has he baptized you? He's willing to bring mercy into the heart of anybody who will let him. Let's get him up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just give our lives to you once again. And we ask, Lord, as the lover of our soul, that we would live into our baptism. Many of us were baptized as infants, and we just pray that we would claim it for ourselves. That we've been washed clean with the blood of the Lamb, and we would consider what we know in a Romans 6 fashion that we are dead to our sin, we're alive to you and our Je- Lord Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we are powered by the Holy Spirit to live the lives you've called us to live. And I pray there'd be a greater reality in each and every one of our lives, Lord, as we depend upon you, Holy Spirit, to do that good work in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.